Hello and welcome to this, the seventh episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, Angus O'Macanally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and producer here at Rise. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And here we are with episode seven, the Christmas special. Delighted that we have made it this far and a little bit shocked, I have to say. Um... I didn't really know starting off this podcast thing where it was going to take us, but it's it's really been a, a huge success. Um, we are riding high in the iTunes charts. Um, as of this morning, uh, last week's episode with Rory Nolan was at number six in the uh, in the podcast charts, which was kind of remarkable. Um, so delighted that it's going so well. Delighted that people are out there listening to it and enjoying it, and hopefully sharing it around and learning a bit and just having a bit of crack with it. As ever, we are coming to you live from our brand new studios in Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar at the Irish Theatre Institute. Still very grateful for these guys for inviting us on board here and uh, and affording us the time and space to get in and record and make these podcasts and as ever we are bringing you this podcast absolutely free of charge we've promised that we'll never charge you for these interviews but we are of course asking for you to support Irish theatre and so if you are in a position to put your hand in your pocket and put your money back into Irish theatre we would ask you that you would do that not necessarily just for a Rise Productions show but for any show if you have a few bob in your pocket go and buy some top price tickets to the Abbey or the Gate now I know every week I bang on about top price tickets uh, at those venues they also have uh, some amazing concessions at the Abbey. I think concessions go down as low as about 15 euro. So, uh, hey, if you qualify for concession, go and buy yourself a cheaper ticket for the Abbey too. Getting top-notch drama for 15 quid is not a bad deal in anyone's business. Um, if those slightly more expensive houses are a little bit out of your reach, go and find one of the smaller fringe venues where you can get tickets for 10 or 15 quid for most productions. Um, and even if that's out of your range at the moment and around the Christmas period, I totally understand why that might be the case. Maybe you might have a fiver to spare and you could go on over to fundit.ie, the crowdsourcing website and look for one of the forthcoming theatre productions who are running a fundraising campaign there. Maybe give them a fiver. Donations start from as low as a fiver and there are always great rewards in return for those donations. Um, Of course, there are other ways you can support the podcast without having to put your hand in your pocket. Um, Simplest way just to tell people about the podcast. We're spreading the word about theatre. If you spread the word about us, it helps the message get out there. Tell people uh, in person over a cup of coffee. Maybe share the link on a Facebook status update or or maybe just retweet the link that we'll put out on our Twitter account. Um, other ways you can support without having to shell out a few bob, um, subscribe to the podcast uh, over on iTunes or on the Fight Night website at fightnight.ie or indeed over at radiomade.ie where the guys are, are hosting us now as, as well. Easiest thing is just to go to iTunes uh, and click subscribe there. It makes life easier for everybody. The uh, The podcast will be magicked into your inbox every Thursday morning. You, uh, you won't have to worry about anything. Um, you can go back and listen back to all the other episodes we've done so far there's half a dozen there already um, about six hours of stuff to listen to uh, all of which is I hope at least a little entertaining well worth checking out um, if you can please uh, rate the podcast over on iTunes preferably a five star rating if you can that's really straightforward and just a click of a button it'll only take you a second and it does an awful lot in terms of boosting us up um, in those ratings over there Um also, if you have a minute, maybe you could leave us a review, uh, which, again, helps those search engines. You can follow us on Facebook. We're at facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland. Or, indeed, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland over on Twitter. 
So this is the Christmas special of the Rice Productions Irish Theatre podcast and as such it's a slightly extended special edition um, where we've decided to give our guest a little bit of extra time to talk a bit more about themselves and about their career and this week that guest is the man who I've been looking to get on this podcast for quite some time now and who strangely enough was my wife's number one suggestion for for doing this podcast. He has shaped so much of uh, the aesthetic of Irish theatre over the last 15 or 20 years now nearly I guess um, and he's the brilliant Paul Keoghan lighting designer and set designer opera enthusiast uh, and an all round great guy um, a guy who I have had the great pleasure of working with on a number of occasions um, I remember the very first time we got to work together was when he was designing uh, Connell Morrison's original almost prototype production of the Dandy Dolls with us at the Beckett Centre in Trinity when we were still training when it was me and Ruth Nega and Aaron Monaghan and Judith Roddy and Lisa Lam and Brian Malarkey from Rise and all the rest of that gang there. Uh, we we did what was uh, an original kind of, I guess, prototype for, for what Connell ultimately did in The Peacock a couple of years later. Um, and I remember it being a, an amazing experience, terrifying as well, because we took on four one-act plays, uh, but it was huge in, in scale. Um, I remember, you know, just the most amazing plays where we did uh, an unfinished sing play with the brilliant Vicky Burke in that. Um, and, you know, and then the big crazy dandy dolls show, the Fitzmaurice show, which is just utterly bonkers. Anyone who saw Connell's production in the Abbey will, will know just how crazy it is. And, and Paul Keoghan was our designer on that. And apart from the fact that he lit it so beautifully, he also uh, was, was on set design for that. And I remember um, myself and Matt Dunphy um, were doing, Purgatory by Yates, the two-hander, and I was playing the older man. And every night before we would go into Purgatory, the entire wooden floor of the stage would open up in the centre like an enormous book and fold out on itself. And the entire floor was opened up into this kind of damp, moss, peaty, earthy texture. And it was just such a phenomenal transformation every night. And and obviously for us as young actors was it was a great help. But as a visual spectacle for the audience it was uh, stunning. And that all came from the, the great mind of Paul Keoghan. Um as I say that was my first time working with him, which was I guess ten years ago now. Um and I've been delighted and very fortunate to work with him quite a number of times since he is uh, a phenomenal talent uh, and a really interesting guy and a guy who as I've said about a lot of the guests on this podcast um, are really passionate about the business uh, and also passionate about opera we get into that a bit later on uh, for a philistine like me that was an interesting conversation look I'm not going to wait around any longer let's get straight into this here is the brilliant Paul Keoghan <laughs> So, Paul Keoghan, here we are. I am uh, very honoured that you're here. You're a proper theatrical heavyweight. Uh, oh, and I'm stop delighted it. to have just you here. Stop it. I'm on a diet. Stop <laughs> it. Right. We do this every week. Take it back to the very beginning. Okay. When theatre, why theatre, how theatre? When, when, when did it begin for you? Um, I think it began for me properly uh, when I was about 15 or 16. And I, I stumbled into the project. I can't remember if it was... Uh, a school group. We had a really good English teacher, Sean McCarthy, who used to bring us um, to uh, to the theatre quite a lot. And I can't remember if this was part of a school group or whether this was me being a maverick <laughs> and sussing out the mean streets of Temple Bar. But I um, I went to see the show on the project, uh, a DYT show called Bust, which I think was I think Peter Sheridan directed it, possibly scripted it. Um, 
I remember Anton Nolan was in it. Uh, and I think there was kind of that cast. This would have been the early 80s now. Um, so I think there was all of those. Uh, Aidan Gillen could well have been in it. Um, right. I, I don't know now. I'm, I'm possibly... Uh, 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 doing a kind of dream DYT cast <laughs> that weren't actually there. But it was a bit of a revelation to me. Um, first of all, I, I, I'd never been in a space like Project before. And this was the old Project right. now, so uh, the audience were sat on three sides. There was no raised stage, it was just a concrete floor. And it, it kind of blew my mind. I think in the way that people talk about going to see The Clash and the right. Academy in, in, the, in 1978 and suddenly realising they could be in a band. Right. Because up until then, theatre for me had been the Abbey or the Gaiety. It had been Prisini March. It had been nice costumes and box sets and uh, people speaking very beautifully right. and, uh, and quite poetic. And this was um, this had its own poetry, but it was a much more brutal. Mm. Uh, it, it was a kind of far fetched play about um, this guy smuggling drugs into Dublin, and uh, it was a little bit kind of it was it was kind of Midnight Express <laughs> or something. <laughs> uh, and um, it, what what was brilliant about it, or what absolutely knocked me for six, was you could there were people who I could recognise. There were my peers. There were people wearing Doc Martin boots. There were people wearing Har- Harrington jackets. They were talking about things that I understood. They were hanging outside chippers. Right. They were having normal conversations. They were effing and blinding. They were smoking. All of these kinds of things that I could immediately... God, yeah, that's, that's real life. That's, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a mile away from what my perception of theatre is. Yeah. And looking back on it now, it seems like such a, I suppose, a naive thing to say. But that was what I associated theatre with being. Was, was, yeah, but was I think that's totally understandable because for yeah. a lot, an awful lot of people, certainly at that age, theatre is getting dragged along to see a school Shakespeare production. Exactly. Or, if you're lucky, a Christmas panto with the family. But exactly. that's, you know, for a lot of people, that's the, the sum yeah. total of experience. Exactly, and that was my experience as well. And I was much more, I, was, I kind of was a bit of an arty kid in that I loved going to the cinema. Right. Um, and cinema was where. Uh, you know, it was kind of my downtown. Our gigs, I loved going to see live music as well. And this suddenly was was a fusion. And it was just, it was a happy accident that I managed to, to get to see that. But it was also the shape of the project. It was also that uh, traverse style, uh, or thrust style seating, the, the intimacy with, mm-hmm. the, with the actors. Um, and, you know, I think there was a couple of scraps and there was a couple of fights in it. I'd be very surprised if there wasn't. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, the edge that that gave it mm. made it all the more, you know, just a very visceral evening of theatre. And kind of as a result of that, I started to go to the project a lot. Right. Um, and um, I don't know if, it, you know, this as well could be a constructed memory, but... I seem to think about Dublin in that time. It's kind of, it still would have been at school, mid-1980s, where there was quite an amount of different stuff happening. So you had, I remember seeing um, Antigone in the project with Mannix Flynn and Alwyn Fuere in it. And again, that had a similar kind of visceral style. Michael Scott directed it. It was just an extraordinary production that's kind of seared in my, my, my memory. Um, and uh, b- 
But I'd also go and see stuff in the gate, which, um, and again, my memory, I, my dates might be slightly skew-if, skew but I remember seeing a production of Heartbreak House that Patrick Mason directed right. and Joe Van Eck designed. And I thought it was the most beautiful thing ever. I, right. I just thought this was, you know, it, it was a little bit like the proscenium arch, beautiful picture, but it was beyond that. It was absolutely exquisitely done. Um, and then, you know, around the corner in the SFX, Passion Machine, we're doing studs and wasters and all of those shows, which were, you know, had the energy of um, of a rock gig. Yeah. Um, like a really, really good gig. You, you felt it, the, there was a giddy excitement in the audience before the off. And literally, I, I always remember when the lights came up. I remember the lights came up on studs. There was just this big cheer. Yeah, <laughs> here we go, lads. Um, and then, uh, you know, completing the circle, you had... Um, I remember the, the Abbey wasn't really on my radar at this stage. Okay. But the Peacock really was. Um, and again, I remember seeing stuff like... Um, again, Patrick Mason... Uh, Directing the Tom McIntyre plays with with Tom Hickey, and the, there was two that stood out. There's the Great Hunger, obviously, which was um, extraordinary to see, uh, a, a kind of mind blowing piece of, piece of theatre. Um, and there was a, there was another piece that even uh, resonated more than the Great Hunger. The Great Hunger was, I think, the big hit yeah. of that period. But uh, there's a piece called Rise Up, Lovely Sweeney, which is the the Sweeney myth, which just absolutely floored me and it floored me on loads of different levels there was uh, an extraordinary sound design mm. um, uh, which kind of undercut any sound. I remember it was, really, it was it was very vicious there was lots of like almost like screaming feedback anytime there was any sort of moment of sentimentality or there's this moment where Sweeney picks up this tiny little dress and it's a, supposed to be a beautiful beautiful moment and it, you know the, the sound is this piercing tone sound and I just loved the, the counterpoint of mm. all of those things and it, it, those shows were shows that I really began to, to notice design right um, because uh, Tony Wakefield lit them uh, I can't remember who the set designer was on them uh, but I remember there was just a, an amazing visual signature to right. those pieces and it was it was almost like all bets were off and, and all rules were there to be broken um, and and I loved I loved all of that so so at this stage were you thinking this career wise this is something I'd like to do and at that point were you thinking I would like to be designing there or did you want to be up on stage or directing or what and um, believe it or not I I, <laughs> I wanted to be an actor Excellent. I wanted to be an actor. I, I when I saw, I think the the the, the bust the DYT show uh, allowed the possibility um, because I could identify with those guys on stage. Sure. Um, so uh, I didn't know how you did this at all. I I, I did, and but I I did notice that on my bus journey in and out of school on Harcourt Street there was this. Theatre school run by this lady called Betty, Betty Ann, Ann Norton. Norton. I spent some of my former and years there well, myself. There you go. We're all Betty Ann kids when it comes <laughs> down to it. Um, so I, I said, right, okay. Um, I, 
this is something I should do. And I enrolled in it, not knowing what I was getting into. Mm. Um, and I, d- I did my speech and drama classes, and I, I can probably recite poetry beautifully if, if I had to. Uh, which is, you know, it's a life skill. It's important. Absolutely. Um, it stood to me. Um, and, you know, in, in fairness, there was a lot of us there. There was a lot of, I, I think, any training, any school, any group of people, any environment like that, it's, it's not about the teachers. It's not about, it's only, it's, it's about the people that you're with. Yeah. And I was lucky because at that time in, in Betty Ann's, there was a lot of people who are, have gone on to, to make this their careers. Jim Colleton, Karen Ardiff. Uh, I know I'm forgetting uh, millions of people, sure. and I'm really, really sorry. Uh, but, and we were kind of mutually supportive um, of each other's endeavours, and that's really where, what I learned from. Not to take away from the, the tuition that you get from sure. Jeanne or from, from uh, Michael or her husband, but... Um, or any of the other tutors that were there, but it was um, it, it was being around like-minded people um, that, that that kind of buoyed you through and 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 kept the whole thing going. So uh, believe it or not, I did appear in a couple of shows. Um, I've forgotten them all, and I think they're best. <laughs> I think they're best in the where are they now file, but. It was one of my first times on stage. And right. one of the things that I do remember distinctly about it was seeing, um, seeing scenery from a backstage perspective for the first time and seeing that thing that the audience don't normally see and seeing the structure of how flats and uh, sets are constructed. Yeah. And I always thought, wouldn't it be great if you just flipped this round? Because it's to me, it's much more interesting to see it from... A backstage perspective, yeah, uh, almost than than seeing it from from front on. So I was really intrigued by uh, by all of that and by um, just the construction of it all. And um, John, my eldest brother, is an architect, and at the time uh, when he was living at home, he had there was lots of books on architecture around. Um, so it was kind of interesting to refer to, 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 to those as well. Um, and from, also from a design perspective, my mother is a milliner, which makes hats. Really? Yeah. And a fine, fine milliner too. So, wow. um, you know, I, I grew up where, and so she would be, she would always have fashion magazines or cuts of fabric so all of that was kind of around so although we weren't a theatery family yeah um there was that kind of there was that slight arty thing yeah going on in the jeans somewhere um uh so uh, i don't I've, I've totally lost my train of thought now where were we uh, well, design design discuss um uh, yeah we're talking no talking about from uh at the time, were you thinking of being an actor or a director? Oh, or right, yeah. You, you no, performed I was, in a couple was, of shows. I was trying to get away from the acting. <laughs> That's what I was trying to do. Yeah, th- so th- th- this was the idea. Th- th- um, and I, I remember my, <laughs> my father saying to me at some stage, you know, acting's great. You go for it. And they, like my, my folks were fantastically supportive of yeah. any ambition that I had. 
but they were also reasonable they were my folks and they were kind of wise as well so they said well maybe you should have a fallback position maybe you should have something to you know yes. on standby eminently sensible said, absolutely eminently sensible uh, so I said design <laughs> what could possibly go wrong what could possibly go wrong if I don't make it as an actor I'll, I'll be a designer <laughs> you know foolproof exactly exactly I thought so um, and it didn't take very long for me to realise that maybe plan B might have to be promoted to plan A okay shall we say um, and uh, I, I was I think I was in my first year in college. I, I, I kind of, I, I drifted an awful lot at school. I didn't really know what I was going to do. But when I, when I got into this whole theatre malarkey, it, it felt like I'd found a place. Right. And I, d- I didn't quite know um, what exactly my position was in this weird kind of strange environment. But I knew that I felt at home. Right. And... I knew that it was right for me to be here. And more than that, I, I knew that I really wanted to be part of uh, this crazy carnival. And um, I, so I, I ran away and I joined that circus. Um, and then I, I, I kind of messed up my first year. I, I did... Blah, 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 blah. I hope we can cut that bit out. That's but if fine. we can't, it just <laughs> add charm. Um I wanted to go on and I, w- I wanted to know more about it. I felt I needed more training. Um, and there weren't that many options. And I was in school one day and reading the Irish Times, uh, there was an article about this new drama course that was starting in, in Trinity. Right. And they were just about, to, I think I was in my... I think I was in my fifth year and they were just about to, they were just about to start it. Um... And they were having an open day a couple of weeks after that. So I went along to, to the open day. And uh, a little bit like uh, meeting up with Jim and with Karen in Betty Ann's, I met more of uh, similarly crazy, carny, carnival <laughs> folk um, who uh, wanted, to do, you know, wanted to do this course. And we talked to some of the students who were on the course. And... Um, it, it was everything that I wanted it to be because it was it was a general drama degree. It wasn't training you. It wasn't the acting course, although the acting course was was starting in tandem with it. It was for for people like me who didn't really maybe know where they wanted to specialise into. So the course itself was in its infancy at that stage. We uh, when I went in, I was the second intake of. Wow. Of students, yeah, that is how old I am. <laughs> and in terms of the team that were there, was there a drama department there per se, or was that a, a smaller section of an English department? Or no, there was a, there was a drama department. Um, we had a, a ramshackle couple of floors on right. a, a building in Westmoreland Street, directly across the road from the the Dart Station, which has now been demolished, and is a swanky steel and glass. <laughs> Um, and in terms of the in terms of staff, or I mean, was people like Brian Singleton, who's been there for a long time, is was Brian Singleton there in the early no, days? No, Brian Singleton. Funny enough, you know no. Uh, John McCormack, uh, Doctor John McCormack, ran the course. Steve Wilmer, who I think who is still, still there, there, yeah. Um, he uh, he was one of the tutors, 
And then various other tutors came in and they were culled from uh, Victor Dixon from the Spanish department, taught a Spanish theatre. Um, and there were various other tutors. But one of the things that was kind of interesting about it is that we all came in and we all had diverse interests. So I, I felt they, they, they moulded the courses or they moulded options around what it was that people were interested in. Wow. So some people uh, might be interested in playwriting and, you know, so, so a playwriting option was, uh, was um, uh, instigated. And likewise with design, with John McCormick would have been very strong on design. Um, so literally every discipline um, became an option. And we were kind of guinea pigs, I suppose. Right. But guinea pigs in a really good sense, because we could, we could give feedback and they listened to us. And it, it was an amazing time. It was an amazing time to learn. Mm. Um, I can't... You know, you you pinch yourself at how lucky we were to be part of that time, that particular time as well, because it was a really keen competition to get into. the The competition was fairly strong to get those places, right? And we were reminded about that the whole time. Like any time we loused up or missed a class, you know, we yeah. were in no uncertain terms told that for you know for every one of you there's 20 people that didn't get get here so you know cop yourself on and you know that again there was a brilliant discipline to get so um uh, but notwithstanding that i managed to 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 mess up because you you, <laughs> you you had to do it you had to do a second subject um sure so it was an arts degree and I decided in my infinite wisdom, the exuberance of youth, that I'd do classics. And not okay. only that, that I'd take ancient Greek, because you had to do a language as well. Wow. So uh, I decided uh, I'd do ancient Greek. Uh, yeah, I know, what a Muppet. <laughs> and um, my ancient Greek now is not something that I'd, I'd write home about. Okay. Uh, but I managed to fail it spectacularly. And not just once, but twice. That's so quite an achievement. It was, it was. Well, it's not really when you consider it. Um, but I, uh, I was almost, I, I was hanging on by my fingernails right. because uh, I was almost turfed out. Um, and I think, I think it would have been very, very different. It would have been a very short podcast. <laughs> but uh, um, Luckily, I managed to, to change my minor degree and I went into history of art. And again, all of these things started, suddenly things started to fall into place. Yeah. Um, design, you know, I, at that stage I'd given up any aspirations to be an actor. Okay. Design was beginning to, 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 to beckon. And the whole notion of the degree, of going on, doing the degree and then possibly going and doing a course like Motley in London was became the became the, the, the goal. Sure. Um and for the first I think for the first time ever I had I had a sense of direction and I had somewhere that I wanted to go that I wanted to go. And um we had great we had really, really good um people teaching us design. Um right. we had uh, a lady called Wendy Shea who's a fantastic designer in her own right. Um who the main thing that I remember about Wendy 
was she taught us all the basics and she taught us all the stuff that we needed needed to know. But she had a, a great um, sense of anything is possible, and any um, if you can justify an aesthetic judgment or if you can justify a concept, then you know you can set check off on the moon. Right. And uh, I really really liked the way her, you know. Her madness didn't offend my madness and vice versa. So we got on like a house on fire. And I really, really enjoyed that, that period. And I thought, right, I'm going to be a set designer. This is what I want to be. This is really where I want to go. Um, and quite by chance, uh, in my first year, I got an opportunity to, do, to direct a play okay. uh, in Players. And um, uh, I'd always had a thing, because one of the first plays that I'd, that I'd seen when I stumbled through the mean streets of Temple Bar was Antigone, I had this thing for Antigone, I just thought it was a fantastic piece. Right. So I did a production of Antigone, and I was really kind of clear about what I wanted. I was, I was a mini-dictator. I knew absolutely everything that I wanted, and everything would be like this, and how it would be lit, even though I knew nothing about lighting. Right. I really wanted this really specific lighting effects and uh, my lighting designer was another mate of mine from uh, from youth theatre days Roz Dixon who very sadly passed away last year but a, a good good pal of mine and um, Roz, Roz was fantastic like she, she uh, I, I'm not sure that she really knew much more than I did but she okay. gave the impression that she had a dad <laughs> and what really impressed me with her was that she could speak the language. And lighting is, is, is such a baffling lingo of numbers. And to the uninitiated, it is, it's, a, it's a completely foreign language. And I remember her saying at one stage, there's one phrase that sticks in my head where she said, can you put, can you put a 117 in the 23 that's in 14. <laughs> now, that, to that, you, that makes perfect sense. makes perfect sense. And the, the, the kind of obliging technician kind of thumbs up, off he went, cut a little piece of gel, brought up a channel on the desk, identified it and popped it into the light. And it, what impressed me about it was it was such a short sequence of numbers. It was a very succinct mm. request was um, actioned very, very expediently, but the effect that it had was massive. Sure. And that one thing, I, I, that was an epiphany moment where I thought, I better learn about this because okay. you know this is this is obviously where it's at. You know. And and was that the start of you looking at lighting? Because in my head, you're both. But in your head, are you a lighting designer? Or a set designer, or both, or, or what? I'm a lighting designer that occasionally uh, moonlights as a set designer. Okay. That, but I'm ostensibly a lighting designer. And do you enjoy both equally, or is the newness of set design something that kind of has a freshness to it when you approach it? Um, they're, they're actually very, very different. I, I get kind of, there's a different thrill to it because. With set design, you have to present your ideas quite early. So it's in poker playing terms, you show your hand very right. quickly. Whereas as a lighting designer, 
you've got a little bit more time to consider and to watch how other things are going, to listen to how the music is being composed, to see the different tempi that the actors are um, finding, to, uh, you know, so the, and also you can change things. Right. You know, you can put the 117 in the 23 that's in Channel 14. Whereas to rebuild 25 grand's worth of steel might be is a different might, kettle of fish. You know, might well require a little bit more negotiation. It's not something you could get in such a succinct command line. Yes. You know? Um, so I like the fact that uh, you, can, you, you can keep ducking and weaving uh, right. as, a, as a lighting designer and you can keep making changes right up until the 11th hour and I enjoy that I enjoy that pressure I suppose right and in, ter- well, in terms of process for you it's because I don't know how lighting designer works I don't know mm. how you approach things so nor do I good excellent don't say it out loud people are listening um, so for you you presumably you get a director approaches you with a script and an idea for a production so like you're saying, with, you get to show your hand a bit earlier with a set. Is, mm. is the set design end of things more about you bringing your artistic vision to something, whereas lighting design is more of a collaborative... Well, I think it's all them. essentially collaborative. I mean, I, I consider myself a team player. Sure. Uh, in, in, you know, wearing either hat or wearing both hats, I, I, I consider it all to be part of a collective vision. And that's what excites me about um, working in theatre is that it's it is a collective vision. It, it sometimes that collaboration will involve a certain amount of compromise, mm-hmm. um, but when it's really cooking or when it's really working, you don't know who's had the idea. Like you don't know. It, it might well be an actor saying, "Listen, if I slam this door, or do you want me to switch the light?" I, I, and that'll change the dynamic of a yeah. scene completely. Or it could be a sound designer saying, listen, if we end this on a button, maybe we could snap to blackout. And, and I love that. I'm not precious about where the ideas, where the ideas come from. I, I, I want to just offer something that's, that's a framework for discussion or a framework that we can, uh, we can tease or we can pull in any direction, you know? Right. So, um, but I guess I, I don't see... Because, I don't see lighting as being uh, a less artistic um, uh, pursuit or a less artistic discipline okay. because you are maybe reacting, you, you're, you're reacting to uh, a design that has already been established for X amount of time. Right. Um, I, I think that in itself involves its own inherent artistry or creativity. Sure. In the way that actors are considered interpretive artists versus a writer being a creative artist. Is it, is it more about... Well, you see, I've always had problems with the labels and all of these labels. I have a big problem when people talk about cast and creatives. You know, I, I, and I'm not feigning any sense of modesty here, but, I mean, are a cast any less creative um, than, you know, a sound or a costume designer? I, I, I don't think so. I think we're all creative. And I mean, it's it's unfortunate those labels yeah. because I think they're reductive. Um, I would like to think that it is an ensemble, an ensemble in the biggest sense, where you have a team 
that involves stage management, that involves all of these wonderfully creative, pe- wonderfully creative people. Um, I've learned so much from working with uh, different people who come up with the most extraordinary techniques to, to solve problems. I mean, I think a lot of what my job is, if you wanted to condense it down, is solving problems. Right. If, if you want to absolutely condense it down to, to something, is how do you like this? How do you make uh, the audience look here, look at your face, even though you might not be the person who's speaking, mm-hmm. but we want to see your reaction? How do we want to make the audience feel that they are in uh, a gulag in Siberia, feel like they're in a tenement in Eccles Street, or feel like they're on the moon? How do we create those atmospheres yeah. so that it, it, it tells the story or it assists the audience in understanding what the story is about like that's that that's essentially what i think i do right. and i think that's how lighting designers work we try and um supply the visual information uh to to or assist the uh the audience in interpreting the visual imagination the the, the visual information by um focusing their attention to various places on the stage right okay so wow. talk to me about the transition then from your time in Trinity training and discovering stuff talk about the trans- transition from that into the big bad world of, of getting out there and designing what was that transition like how did you go about it um, again uh, well I, I think I said that I'd, I'd had this sense of direction but that I kind of fell off that sense of direction as soon as I'd established it I kind of deviated from it um, I we had this fantastic studio uh, on Lombard Street, which is now the Green on Red, Black on Red Gallery. gallery yes. Um, which was uh, one of the things that we had to do as first year students. We, we had to take this thing called a stage management examination. And basically, it was stuff like how to wire a plug, um, how to rig a light how to wash a paintbrush. The essentials for any technique. Absolutely, absolutely. How to, you know, how to clip your keys onto your belt, that kind of stuff. <laughs> how to tie your hair back. Do you they know? present you with a leather man <laughs> over there? Absolutely. <laughs> now, this is pre-leather man. This is back in the 80s. Um, and we, I remember it was a 90% pass mark, and it was basically a safety induction. Sure. And it was to allow us to work unsupervised in the space. Sure. Um, and a couple of us, uh, a couple of us, got that uh, uh, that thing, and were allowed to work. And I suddenly found this was my playground. This was absolutely fantastic. And various people had the role of technical manager. I remember in the fir- in my first year, there was uh, an American postgraduate student was the, the the technical manager. But then in my second year, there's a guy called Kevin Saunders, who's uh, a really good friend of mine uh, took over and um, he uh, he was a lighting designer and he worked a lot with bands and so he brought a, a certain kind of rock and roll um, work practice to it that you had to work quickly right um, you there was no none of this standing around scratching your chin that you had to you had to be decisive you had to get in get out mm-hmm. You know, 
rock bands you you had very little time you were on and off like a prom dress and that was it you know um so uh i, I learned quite a lot from 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 him and i was beginning to to see the possibility not not just in terms of the demystification of of what lighting was about but also seeing it as a potential career career path um and at the time the lighting design teacher in uh, the Samuel Beckett Centre, who is still the lighting design tutor in the Samuel Beckett Centre, is a guy called Bernard Griffin. And he had he ran a lighting company called Lighting Dimensions. And both through Kevin and through Bernard, they were constantly looking for crew. So I started crewing on, uh, not just on theatre shows, but on gigs, on um, fashion shows, car launches, all of these kinds of things. And, and you know, learning that get in, get it up, get it done, get it done safely, obviously, but um, you work with a, with a bit of speed and a little bit of panache. And I think that that also, excuse me, it also kind of informed the sort of designs that I was doing because I was making money from crewing work, right. which was cross-subsidising the design work that I was doing, which I wasn't making any money at. Sure. But I was also... Um, because I was kind of in with this lighting company, I'd be able to get really good discounts on stuff and I'd be road testing stuff. And I, I remember starting this thing, which I still do now. Every design that I do, I will do something new. I'll do something that I've never done before. Now, that might be I'll use a new colour. I might be... I'll, uh, but there will always be something bespoke to every single design. So just that you're constantly evolving and developing. Well, it's, it's, it's so you don't fall back into this whole sense of, uh, you know, a grab bag of tricks that right. you can just pull out, as, you know, uh, at any occasion. That you, you, you constantly think about what can I bring to this? What is going to be absolutely new to this? Um, so that's, what, that's when that all started. And I guess it was just a combination of crewing and um, I... My first break, I suppose, was in dance, um, right. and I, I was asked to, to like the National Youth Dance Company, and uh, there was three choreographers um, doing three separate pieces, one of whom was uh, a young man called Michael Keegan Dolan. Whatever doing, happened to him? I know, I know, who knew? <laughs> um, and uh, he did this fantastic, I remember he did this fantastic piece based on a Faust legend with incredibly uh, wonderfully sexy piece and I, I, I loved it I thought dance god who knew this yeah. is fantastic um, so uh, I knew absolutely nothing about it but I, I became uh, heavily involved with uh, the dance community um, and there was one company in particular, um, a company called Eye Contact, that I got involved with, who were basically made up of um, Roger Doyle, uh, was one of the directors of it, and a lady with a fantastic name, Snaggy O'Sullivan, who was the, um, <laughs> the choreographer. And we did, we did three shows in all, two of which were quite memorable. The first one was in the Douglas Hyde Gallery uh, for um, the the Dublin Theatre Festival. This would have been in and around 1990. And Monica Frawley designed the set. The most phenomenal, phenomenal set. 
Uh, and it was my first time meeting and working with Monica, who I think is just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Right. And um, it was a monumental, installational piece of work and just fanta- absolutely fantastic to work on. Um, and then we did another piece about a year or two later in, uh, in IMA. And right. they gave us, Emma were amazing, they gave us this whole corridor and all these rooms of it. And I think they gave it to us for months, like we were there for months preparing for the piece and mm. then for the for installing it and for the run of the piece as well. Um, and Roger was kind of the main, was kind of the instigator uh, of, uh, of those two pieces. And his, his collaboration with Snaggy had come from this in, initiative that was going on at the time called New Music, New Dance, where every, uh, every year there was a festival of composers and choreographers getting together um, and creating short pieces. And there was a festival uh, over two, three weeks in project every year that showed these pieces. So I was involved in lighting, in lighting those pieces as well. So I got to know other choreographers and other dance companies. Sure. So... Um, and then, uh, as uh, around about that time, I went off to London to do a very short little course, only a one-week course of workshops with this amazing American lighting designer called Jennifer Tipton, who um, is, for my money, the best in the world. Okay. Um, but uh, she is primarily known for her lighting with dance companies. And uh, it was one of those, again, another mind-blowing experience. So I thought this is this is really, fun. this is going to be the major string to my bow, and okay. I'm going to learn much more about dance. Um, and then you just kind of get sidetracked. The, the 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 next thing that happened was I started working in project. Okay. In '94, I became production manager there. Right. And uh, I stayed there for two years, and it was. I always uh, think of it as kind of the master's degree. It was, it, it was in lieu, I suppose, of going off to, uh, to, to England maybe to do one of those bespoke technical theatre sure. courses or design courses. This was learning on the job. This was you, right? Exactly, yeah. learning on the job. And uh, again, project, project, the place was falling to pieces, but um, we had extraordinary companies coming in there was you know anytime Rough Magic came to town that was the moment where you had to everybody had to get their A game on and it was like you know we cleaned up and put the best silver out because <laughs> they were the big guns but also like Barabbas I remember Barabbas doing their first season and um, the thing that really sticks in my mind though uh, it wasn't the theatre or the performance space at all it was the gallery because Fia Kmokaneel was artistic director at the time, and he also programmed the gallery. Right. Um, and installing that work in the gallery and working with visual artists, it was something that was completely new to me, but it was uh, hugely instructive mm. and uh, really inspiring. And just seeing the way that they worked and the way that they taught and the way... The funny thing was that there was an avoidance of anything theatrical. So, you know, they, they, they always wanted... Um, 
if they were using a certain material, it had to be the material, not the material. Not you didn't try and make it look like something. So, you sure. know, if if they wanted a pane of glass, it had to be a pane of glass, and not as we would do on stage, put a pane of perspex yeah. up. You know, it had to be the real deal. Um, and I liked that. I liked the the, the the kind of integrity of the materials that they, okay. they used. And I found that to be to be a real buzz. Right. So we've talked about theatre, we've talked about dance. We've got to move on to opera. We really do. I was wondering when this was going to come. Why in the name of God should I give a shite about opera? Go. I was, I was, afraid, <laughs> you'd, I was afraid you'd ask me such a, a searing and insightful question. <laughs> why should you? Well... I guess why not? And the simple answer is why not? And I think that if you experience it, if you experience opera as an art form, and it, you know, opera is such a wide term, it's like theatre. Right. It's like asking why should you give a shite about theatre? If opera is well done and you experience it, you will be transported, you'll be transformed, you'll, you'll laugh, you'll cry you'll be entertained, you'll be moved, but you'll be taken somewhere else sure. for the duration of, of, that, of that opera, if it's done well. Okay. Um, is it elitist? Is it too expensive? Is it only for opera snobs who know the ins and outs of each birdie? Yeah, well, I think, ask that same question and replace the word theatre for opera. Sure. And I think that... Uh, it can be all of those things. Okay. Um, there's no denying it can be extremely it can be extremely elitist. But then, every big major opera house like Ian in the Coliseum, you can go and see the Eno for about fifteen quid. Now you won't get a great seat. Okay. Be way up the back. The one thing about those fifteen quid tickets at Eno is usually they're way way back up in the gods, but the sound is fantastic. You won't see, the you know. Yeah. I prefer to sit in the stalls. So I can see it. Sure. But the sound that you will hear is absolutely sensational. And also, you get to see into the pitch. You get to see the musicians playing. So um, is it elitist? Do you have to know? No, you don't have to know anything. I think you have to, to, to you know, do you have to know um, about Shakespeare to appreciate Hamlet? Or can you go in with an open mind? Do you have to know the text? You know, um, we saw a deconstructed Tis a Pity She's a Whore yeah. playing. Do you need to know the original play in order to appreciate that deconstruction? Or can you just go and enjoy what it is that you're on receiving merits, on its own merits? And yeah. I'd say that exactly the same thing is, is true about opera. And you mentioned Verdi and Wagner and Puccini and all of these great, com- and Mozart, all these great composers um, have an aura about them, but in the same way that Shakespeare or and Ibsen Beckett or and Ibsen <laughs> have an aura about them to the yeah. uninitiated, and it's because we're so familiar with Ibsen and Chekhov and Shakespeare and Ocasey and Beckett. Like I'm sure a vast swathe of the population would find Beckett as challenging, yeah. if not more so than um, La Boheme. What? is the one thing we could do to, inverted commas, fix opera in Ireland. Oh, God, well, if I was in charge... Yes. <laughs> a terrifying um, prospect, but continue. A completely terrifying prospect. I think that uh, it's, it's a terrible... It's, 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 it's about a structure. It's not just about money. A lot of people say it's about money. And uh, opera is an expensive art form. There's no point in pussyfooting around yeah. about that. Like, there's been big debates... 
about whether Dublin should have its own opera house because we don't have an opera house here and for yeah. God's sake they have one in Cork <laughs> um, I, we yes we should have an opera house but only if we can sustain it year round we built a beautiful opera house in Wexford which is um, in for two weeks of the year uh, is is uh, used to its absolute optimum maximum. Sure. Um, well, actually, that's a bit disingenuous. For two weeks of performance, so yes. for say three months of the year, it, it's, it's in preparation for yeah. that two week festival. But for nine months of the year, it's not used to its uh, its optimal potential, and I think that's. Um, I I think that shows a. a A deficit of a vision, right. a shortage of any kind of structure of how to how to how to use it. I'm tying myself up in all that because I'm I'm not actually in charge, and I yes. probably shouldn't ever be in charge. But I do think that the, the quick fixes are probably um, before we have a building. I think we need to have companies and company structures to be able to produce works, even in the Gaiety in the yes. Grand Canal, in the structure in the the, the theatre buildings that we have. Um, we do have some great companies, like Wexford Festival is a fantastic thing to experience. The unfortunate thing is that not more people get to experience yes. it. And um, one of the, you know, as well as the, the full-length evening operas, they do short works at lunchtimes. So you could jump on a train in the morning in Pear Street it's two hours away yeah. you see an hour long opera you could get back in the afternoon and I wish more people did that because it's an easy way of doing it the tickets aren't that expensive and it's it's a nice you know it's a, it's a nice way in you as do, an introductory kind yeah, of experience yeah exactly, exactly. Okay. Um, and there's other introductory experiences as well and the other company that um, I think are fantastic are opera theatre company right um, uh, I did some shows with them my my introduction to opera was with Opera Theatre Company, and we did um, one piece I did with them was a, a piece called The Lighthouse by uh, a guy called Peter Maxwell Davis, and it's um, it's based on a true story. It's about these uh, three lighthouse keepers that uh, mysteriously disappeared from uh, a lighthouse on Elanmore Island in the Outer Hebrides right. in the year nineteen hundred. I know this story like it's it's a it's kind of Marie Celeste story. Um, now the opera was written in the 1980s and it's, it's, it's challenging music it's, it's atonal, there's a lot of dissonance in it there's, you know, it's, it's not the kind of lush melodies yes. that maybe you'd uh, associate with, a cl- with grand opera it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's tough going but it's worth it okay. in the way a Beckett play is tough going sure. but it's worth it and what, I, what really impressed me about Opera Theatre Company is they tour absolutely everywhere. They go, uh, they're kind of the SAS of opera companies. They go where nobody else is going <laughs> to go. And, um, and a little bit, just to keep the military term going, uh, when we were doing this tour, I went out on tour um, uh, as crew. Right. Um, uh, so I did all of the venues as well as designing lights for the, for, for the show. And um, 
uh, at one stage we had these reporters from the Guardian, the Manchester Guardian, came over to do a kind of Saturday magazine expose on these this crazy Irish opera company who were taking Peter Maxwell Davis to these tiny little places, including this. Uh, this little village in Kerry, Coport McGee, right. which is a small little fishing village. Um, and the, the contrast of, you know, bringing this contemporary music piece to this very rural, isolated hall that probably could safely hold about 150 people. Right. And I'm sure we had twice that amount of people wow. in there. And it was, that particular gig was the best probably the best night of my career bar none because it spoke to the audience got it yeah and they didn't get it on a musicologist oh isn't it amazing what he's doing with (laughs) those scales and oh listen to those chord progressions yeah no they got it because they got the story sure and they understood the story and they understood the dissonance in the music was somehow reflective of a storm, of a weather, of something not being right in the world. Yeah. And the moment they tried to sing a melodic piece was to try and suppress that. And when they sang this triumphal hymn at the end, they were really... You know, they, they made their own associations. And that, if, if, if anything, that made sense of working in this crazy art form and it was reflected unfortunately these reporters who were embedded with us um, <laughs> they, their piece was never published but they gave they sent the copy right. through and I, I have it's one of the few things I don't keep much but I keep this um, fantastically written um, as I say it's a Saturday supplement piece it's not a review it's yeah. not a uh, an arts piece it's more about we went to this tiny little village and this amazing thing happened and at the beginning of the, the article he, he, the reporter says every chief executive artistic director of every opera company in the UK should be here seeing this because this is what's possible and things like that this is the annoying thing things like that happen and fall under the radar yeah and um, all we we get to hear about is the fact that there's no grand opera that there's no opera Ireland that there's no big Verdi's and Wagner happening in in Dublin but we do have something that's kind of precious and needs to be preserved and needs to be celebrated as well right before we finish up, because we're getting more way over time. Are we? Yeah. Before Did I we... talk too much? <laughs> no. Never. <laughs> Before we finish I've up. We've just started. We have to discuss Man of Aaron. We do. Um, what the hell were you thinking? Where did this come from? <laughs> is this oh, the maddest God. idea of all time? That's, you, thought the, you thought opera was a rant. <laughs> this, is a, this is a longer one. It, um, it came... Okay. It, 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 really positive history... I happened to be in Japan. My my uh, my brother Daniel got married to a fantastic Japanese woman, Akame, and they're arriving in Dublin today, which Excellent. is fantastic. They live in California, and uh, I went over for their wedding, um, which I think was God, he's going to kill me, two thousand and seven. Um, 
and I took a little bit of a holiday in, in Japan after the wedding and didn't really have a huge game plan. I spent a couple of days in Tokyo. I went to see a few things and uh, I took, a, I went to, my next stop was Kyoto and literally on the train to Kyoto, it's about a three hour train, train ride, I got talking to this woman in a kind of pigeon English, various different languages, but we managed to communicate. And she told me about this style of performance called Benshi, which um, was when they introduced cinema into Japan, uh, all of the films that were, there wasn't an indigenous Japanese uh, film industry. So all of the films they took, the Charlie Chaplin films, they, they came from Western culture. Um, rather than re-editing them with Japanese intertitles, they got these actors or performers to read from index cards what the characters were saying, um, uh, which sounds kind of hilarious because, um, uh, you know, if they got their index cards mixed up, <laughs> all, all bets were off. But essentially, these performers became more popular than the films, and they became celebrities. And people would go and see their favourite Benchy performer. And uh, they, they evolved their craft to, um, to, to do much more than just narrate. They, they gave opinions. They um, sometimes interacted with the characters. And when the talkies started, they started having conversations with some of the characters on stage. Wow. And there were kind of a link between the audience in the cinema and, uh, and the film itself. Now, I'd never heard of this before. It was all new to me. And I thought, this sounds fantastic. And she said, if you're interested... And she had the kind of equivalent of in Kyoto, you right. know, the Kyoto uh, Entertainment Guide, this is on. And she circled this, this performance. Uh, and I went to see literally that night I went to see it and it was fantastic um, uh, so I was describing it to, 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 to somebody a little bit like this, this situation um, and I was saying you know it would be kind of like in our context if you took a film like Man of Aaron and you got somebody like Liam O'Mahony to, to, to narrate it Oscar Elga and a light went <laughs> off in my and literally it was like that it was a conversation with somebody about this would be the thing and you know, it's so crazy it just might work well I thought about it and uh, the first person I contacted was Sheila Nakaneni who yes. just said um, what do you think about this as an idea and um, she came straight back and was, I was kind of amazed oh no she didn't she rang me it was, I, I emailed her and she rang me back within two minutes and said do it do it I want to be part of it do it do it do it so then I kind of put together a proposal and uh, I got in touch with Maura O'Keefe and said listen do you think this would have legs and um, uh, you know do you think it's got possibilities and she said yeah I love it I love the idea and um, we got an amazing bunch of people together we got uh, Mel Mercier composed a new soundtrack the film itself I'd always imagined it as a silent film. Um, right. And I was a little bit shocked when I got the DVD and I put it on and I heard the, uh, can I say, the awful original music that was just dreadful. Um, but also the, the, the kind of post-production dubbed dialogue uh, that was, you know, a real kind of a stage Irish. Hope you buy you. Hi, we'll be grand. Ah, sure, you're a great old man. If you listen to it, it's, it's absolutely... 
absolutely astonishing. Right. And the more I found out about it, uh, the, the making of the film, uh, they shot the film over two years. Uh, Robert Flaherty and his family lived on Inishmore for two years making this film. And they shot something like 72 hours of film. So, Good Jesus. I know, you think the hour, the hour and 12 minutes feels long. There's another, <laughs> there's another 70 hours of storms. Um, and we also found this incredible uh, book by a guy called Pat Mullen, who was Robert Flaherty's assistant director, but much more than a, a kind of assistant director than yeah. we would know in, in today's terms. He made everything work. He was the fix-it man. He cast it. He got people to do stuff. The cottage that uh, all of the interior scenes are shot in, he built that. That was built <laughs> from scratch. I mean, it was just an amazing... The whole story about it was just amazing, and the more we delved into it, all of these things um, uh, fil- filtered in, filtered into it. So um, we had uh, Sheila wrote a script. Yes. Um, everybody I approached said yes. Right. Uh, and it was amazing to get Liam on board. I've been like the biggest fan of his for the longest time, and. He just, uh, he loved the idea and said, yeah, absolutely, I'd love to be, I'd love to come on board. And um, and so for you, this was you directing us such then for, for this? Well, yeah, it's directing. Is it directing or is it curating or, or, or what is it? Uh, it's, it's kind of a strange thing because when you get people, uh, and there's another person, we had this uh, fantastic sound designer called Chris Shutt who's since gone on to win a Tony Award for Warhorse, can I just say. Um, but learned, you learned everything from you, But, did. you know, obviously working on Man of Aaron just <laughs> is, is, is something that was close to his heart. And we, we got together, we did a very short rehearsal period in, uh, in Druid, in Chapel Lane in Druid. Um, and uh, we'd, done a, we'd done a couple of workshops through the year, uh, for about 12 months in advance where we were getting the script to, the, the script together so we all kind of had an input in what the script was about we quoted from Pat Mullen's book and his experience of seeing the film being made on the inside because his is, his is a completely different story to uh, the, the, the story that you get from all the film history books he was there, he saw it on the inside um, and uh, then uh, also just things that observations that we would have made or that particularly Liam would have made um, and Liam and Sheila didn't want it just to be about um, uh, describing what was on in screen because that, that you know there's yeah. no real need for that you know it was just about uh, I don't know it was trying to, 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 to fuse on one level this crazy this kind of intriguing Japanese form with I guess a sense of being a Shanaki and sure. blending see if, seeing if there was any shaded area in the Venn diagram between those two styles and my job was to listen to all of these incredibly talented people making fantastic suggestions and go yes no maybe right and so if that's what direction was yes that's what I did and so might it come back? Might you do something similar again? What love what, what, to? What do you well, think? Love to. Well, we've been trying. Uh, you wouldn't believe it. We've been trying to get it back because I hoped that 
um, Galway would be a launching pad sure. for it. Um, now it hasn't quite worked out that way. Partly um, because we're all our schedules, it's it's quite difficult to get everybody yeah. together in the same room. But yes, uh, I think the form is a winner, okay. and uh, there's a, a, another film that I've started exploring something similar on. Um, this is Die Hard Two. Die Hard Two, yeah. And I'd like I'd like you to <laughs> I'd like you to voice Bruce Willis. Um, I know maybe I should have chosen a more prudent time to ask you, but I, I'd like to ask we'll you talk, in you front can, of the nation. You can talk you know? to my people. My people yeah, talk exactly, to your people. Exactly. So but yeah, that's I I I'd, I'd love to do it again, and it's certainly on the it's certainly on the cards to right. do it again. When and where, I'm not sure. Watch this space. Right, so before we finally let you go, because we're way over time. I'll just stop. Talk to me about, talking about the highlights, because the thing, there was a conversation I had with someone a while ago about uh, the Forbes magazine Hollywood um, Power 100. Um, <laughs> and I was talking about, to someone about what if we had uh, an Irish theatre Power 100. Um, or even just a Power 10, maybe. And, you know, was it, you know no. would it be Fieg at the Abbey, or would it be Pat Moylan, or David Parnell, or would it be, you know, Gary Hines, or something like that. And your name came up because you have shaped so much of the aesthetic of Irish theatre over the last however many number of years um, that in, term, in terms of the design of it so much of it has come from you so talk to me about some of the highlights for you over God. your long and varied career Where, what have been, what have been the best moments the best, that's really really difficult it's a very kind of flattering thing to think that I made the Forbes top 100 of Irish theatre though I'm, I'm going to go out on a high on that, on that. okay um well, I talked about the lighthouse, uh, the opera, um, Irish theatre. I've done a lot of work with Kirkadarika. Yeah. Um, and uh, who are pretty spectacular, it has to be. Fantastically spectacular, and but on a on a kind of macro and micro level, I mean, I'm just thinking, right? Try, I can't pick one. Like uh, Wojciech uh, in Hoboken, the Irish Navy give us their base to do a play in. Thank you. Thank you to the Irish Navy. Uh, that was pretty spectacular and was one of those things. I remember I was on my way home uh, to the train station and I, I turned back and, and came back and I wanted to see it another night because my, the photos I'd taken on the first night hadn't come out, so I just wanted to come back and photograph it again. Um, but also doing something like Request Programme, which is... Uh, a more recent piece that we did this and summer. much more intimate and small absolutely. scale than most of what Abso- absolutely absolutely but I mean I think this is kind of a testament to, to, to Pat Kiernan that he does like to shake it up a bit so that's why it's so difficult you know and there's obviously Winter's Tale which was an amazing experience in Cork Opera House um, uh, f- phenomenal I mean the, the, the support that Cork Opera House gave us was uh, was just absolutely Amazing. I mean, they let us, similar to the Irish Navy, they, yeah. they, they kind of said, well, anything the Navy can do, we can do better. You can have our gaff and you can have everything and come in and use it and uh, rehearse in it and uh, produce this bespoke show, uh, you know, the, this bespoke Shakespeare show for our venue. Wow. Um, and the great thing about it was that, uh, you know, a, again, Pat... Uh, had this notion because I was struggling with it a bit I right. have to say I was struggling in the sense that I was trying to design a set 
to go right. with it. And Pat would constantly say, no, it's too much of a structure, too much of a structure. And it was, it was really stressing me out because I was th- thinking, we're going into the theatre, we need a set. Of course. And Pat was saying, we, ne- we never have a set. Like, we go into naval bases, we go into warehouses, we take what's there and yeah. we make do with it. And uh, so that's, you know, it took a long time, but that's what we did. And it was absolutely magical. You know, right. it was a magical experience. So, Paul, that's brilliant. I mean, there are a million different highlights. We could be here all the rest of the day, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. I really, really appreciate you coming in to have Thank a chat you. with us. Thank you. Yeah, um, it was good fun. That was, uh, that was brilliant, and uh, hopefully that'll keep people entertained over the Christmas. We hope so. I'm delighted to be your Christmas special. <laughs> well, like I said to you, the number one person my wife wanted on the hit list for the podcast was you, so I've, at least I fulfilled your her Christmas wish. Your wife is a woman of consummate taste. Can I just say that? I've always said that, Paul. Thanks a million, man. It's been a pleasure. Cheers, Angus. So there it is, the Christmas special with the incredible Paul Kyogen. An absolute delight to hang out with Paul. I'm a, a massive fan of his and has been have been for a very long time. Um, very strange for me to hear him talk about his his path into the business and have it mirror my own so closely. Um, I also spent my formative years with uh, Betty Ann Norton uh, up in Harcourt Street, and also hear him talk about going to see uh, Tom Hickey in Tom McIntyre plays in The Peacock. You know, a decade later in the late 90s, that's exactly what I was doing. I remember going to see the Chirpon that was on in the Peacock at that stage and uh, and being utterly blown away by it. Again, Tom Hickey in a, in a Tom McIntyre play, very strange. And also around that time, it was around that time of 96, 97, 98, there was an awful lot of really exciting stuff going on in the Peacock. Um, shows like The Electrocution of Children by Chris Lee and stuff that, that Paul himself designed were the ones that I was seeing at that same stage as a, you know, as a teenager going, wow, this is really incredible. This is what I want to do for a living. Uh, really strange to see those those mirrors because uh, I think the, the me coming from the mean streets of the north side and, and the dirty south side or the Paul Kyogen is, I don't know that we necessarily would have thought we would have had that much in common uh, in terms of our formation as, uh, as theatre artists, but brilliant to hear it. So that brings us up to uh, our usual roundup. There's not a huge amount going on around town at the moment over the Christmas break. Obviously, the government inspector is still playing at the Abbey which I got to go and see last night actually uh, some amazing performances there uh, that's that's well worth checking out if you get uh, a minute starring our the brilliant Rory Nolan who you would have known from last week's podcast and Peter Daly from earlier on Don Witcherly's in there Marion O'Dwyer there's a load of great people there that's well worth checking out uh, and Little Women is still running at the gate that's worth checking out as well if you can get in to see that and, uh, and apart from that there's all the pantos that are on around at the moment I don't need to name check them all if you're looking for a a nice light evening of entertainment go and check those out and also I think it's important at this time of year to have a think about if you're looking at Christmas presents for people, maybe look at the membership schemes that some of the theatres and theatre companies offer, whether the friends schemes, patron schemes, those kind of things. Uh, I know they can be a little bit pricey. They can be a couple of hundred quid. Uh, the thing to remember is that if you go over, I think the threshold is about 250-odd quid, that at that stage they do become tax deductible. So that's uh, an interesting thing that you can look at if that is in your price bracket. Um, if not, though, look at the simple thing of just buying someone theatre tickets uh, as a Christmas present or as a stocking filler that uh, and buy one for them but also buy one for yourself and bring them along have a nice night out uh, that'd be an amazing Christmas present to get from anybody a lovely evening if it's someone you fancy maybe take them out could be a hot date you never know might be a nice little bit of romance after the Christmas season have a look at the shows that are coming up over the next couple of months and say that could be a great night out and just book for some Friday night and uh, and take them out it's uh, an awful lot more thoughtful than just uh, a gift voucher for some shopping centre or whatever we can all go and buy whatever we want in Dundrum let's try and keep money in the country with ind- 
independent retailers but you know more importantly let's try and keep the money within the arts sector within the Irish theatre industry uh, it'll do a huge amount in helping to keep jobs going for all of us uh, for next year see if you can do that um, that's us then that is episode 7 in the books we will of course be back next week for another conversation with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers and possibly for a roundup of the year so far um, that's episode 7 in the books this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus Og McAnally we'll see you next week Thank you.